Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Chabura. Uh, tonight we have with us our beloved Rosh Bet Midrash, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, for an exciting public shiur titled Purim, the Existential Festival, which will be exploring the upcoming Moed. Uh, some announcements. Last night, the Miami Division uh, of the Chabura hosted our dear Rabbi Itzhak Bardugo for a shiur at Temple Moses, exploring his new sefer published through the Chabura, Understanding Chazal. Um, I want to thank all those who were able to make it. Stay tuned for more Chabura events, and if you haven't, make sure to purchase a copy. And next, the Chabura will be sending out a form asking people for their feedback about how we are doing and how we can improve. Uh, the link will be shared in our chats and in the description of this video on YouTube. Uh, please take a second to fill it out as this will truly help us uh, hear from you and help us grow. Uh, with that said, thank you so much all for being here and for all those uh, that will be listening after. And thank you so much, Rebi. The floor is yours. Thank you so very much, Rab Ohad. I appreciate it. And so, hello, good evening, everyone. Lovely to see everybody. Thank you for joining live tonight. It's always more challenging to join live when you can hear the recording. I know this. So your live presence is uh, is doubly uh, appreciated. We are going to speak a bit about Purim tonight. I'm calling it the existential holiday because I like expensive words. But I, existential sounds like an expensive word, but it really is not. It's a very simple word and simply means the nature of existence, something that has to do with existence. And what that means is that Purim is a ha, it's a, not a ha, but it's a, it's a moed, it's a festival that addresses really the core issues of our existence, of human existence on this, on this planet and the underpinnings of it. Now, it sounds very broad. And it sounds perhaps quite abstract, as it is. It is. And that is why Purim is a mo'ed that is not so easy to grasp. It's not very easy to really get what everything is all about, besides the fact that we were under existential threat. It is the only mo'ed, really, that we celebrate in which we were under existential threat and where we were. the plan was to annihilate us, not to cause us spiritual damage, not to incarcerate us, uh, none of that, right? But rather to... Uh, to completely eradicate our presence from the world, which is why there's this relationship drawn between Nazis and Amalek. Yeah, but that is not the major focus that we want to, or that I want to look at tonight. I want to look at and understand why Purim, I'm calling Purim, the Moed that deals with being, that deals with the nature of existence itself. Now, one could ask, well, what is the Hebrew word for existence? And there isn't really one. I mean, we say mitziut, right? And we talk about what is matsui and not matsui. And that simply means what is found, right? What is what is uh, present. We also talk about the havaya, right? Or the being of things. And, um, and it's funny because, you know, you don't seem to really hear those words used in the Megillah. What you hear in the Megillah used and the, the name of the festival and the predominant concept that runs through it is this issue of goral, of pur. Uh, Pur simply being the Persian translation of Goral. And that is uh, this this notion, this idea that there is a fundamental nature of randomness to the to the universe, to our lives, to how it is that things run. That is there. And so it is looking at the nature of our existence on this earth, and for that matter, the development of the universe to be fundamentally random. And that's difficult, right? Because in our religious minds, we think that randomness is really, you toss that out the window when you believe in God, right? You toss all of those ideas out. Everything is bashert, or everything is nasib, as we would say in Arabic. Everything is meant to be. And uh, even the hachamim say things like, everything that God does is ultimately for good. And that, uh, you know, not a single blade of grass, gamaran hulin dafhet, not a single blade of grass grows in the in the field without a an angel commanded by God whipping it, telling it to grow. So, you know, people don't really know what to do with those things. Uh, that Gemara, for example, is used often to be able to negate the, the concept or the idea that there is this aspect of randomness in the world. But that Gemara is a poor choice to negate the aspect of randomness in the world because people take that Gemara out of context. What that Gemara is dealing with is witchcraft. The whole sugya deals with witchcraft. 
And that is simply a statement, right? This thing about the grass, a blade of grass not go, growing without God's decree, right? Telling it to grow is simply to say that there is no other source for anything to occur on in the universe but from God's will. There is no demonic, uh, uh, you know, antithesis, or there is no demonic uh, um, rival to God that you know one can draw from in order to be able to do anything. So one must not worry that a witch is drawing from any kind of uh, power other than the source of the universe itself. So that's just a side bit. What we want to look at tonight is how it is that Purim kind of expresses it, and that's what I will attempt to do. I call your attention to the fact that all of the other Mo'adim have some aspect that is unique to them in terms of their theme, in terms of the sense, the, the subject around which they are built. So Pesach, of course, is built around the concept of freedom. And Sukkot is built around, around the concept of, of joy and happiness. And Shavuot even is built around the concept of our Torah and what it is that it means to us. And uh, Hanukkah is essentially built around the concept of identity, and what it means to be who we are as opposed to other, that it resembles us or may be like us in this world. Every one of the Mo'adim, including the fast days, each one its own concept, has these aspects that are important to understand if we are going to engage in them appropriately. So when we say, these are the appointments in time, which is literally what a mu'ad means, that are called kodesh, that are called sacrosanct, they are special, it means that we recognize them not just as a time to say kiddush or a time to pause and do particular mitzvot, but to actually understand what it is that the nature of the day is, what is the concept of the day. And that's what I would like to present to you. Tonight. So without further ado, let us have a look at some sources with regards to Purim. The first set of sources that we will look at is this peculiar place, mint, this peculiar placement that the Hachamim uh, afforded to Purim. It seems that at least as far as the Hachamim are concerned, and it's essentially all in terms of what the Hachamim are concerned with, because the entire festival is established by the Hachamim. So they determine what it is, and they define its nature, and how does we relate to it. Purim is one, is, is unique in that it is evergreen. It will never go bad. It will never go away. It will never become irrelevant. It will never fall into the backdrop. It will never disappear in any sense uh, of the of the word. Now you might say, well, what about the other festivals? Are they going to not be evergreen? Will they fall into the backdrop? Will they disappear in some capacity? Well, it would seem so. It would seem so because of what's said about Purim. When Purim is expressed as something that will never go away, it indicates that the other things in some capacity will. And uh, it's not just the Mu'adim that we will find to be secondary in nature. I mean. I am not suggesting that the festivals in the Torah will no longer be held by Israel. Of course they will. All the mitzvot in the Torah may remain right, forever. But their significance will be outshadowed, will be overshadowed right, by the Mashiach and the experiences of that time that we, that we have. But beyond Mu'adim, the books of the Bible, the books of the Tanakh, those too will become, to a certain degree, um, less relevant to us than they are today, except for Megillah Tester. So the Hachamim put the festival, the Megillah, in this very, very special category, that it is always relevant, always meaningful, always at the forefront for us. And that itself is something that we have to kind of, you know, think about and get our minds around. So I'm going to show you some of these sources just to be able to begin. And we begin here with the halakha of reading the Megillah itself. Look at the language. This is Harambam presenting the deen of reading the Megillah. The language is extremely powerful. The reading of the Megillah in its appropriate time. Why does Harambam say it's appropriate time? Because the Megillah is allowed to be read in various other times in order to fulfill the mitzvah if there are certain circumstances uh, keeping us from being able to read it in its appropriate time or on the day of Purim itself. And it is a mitzvah from the sofrim, which means the hachamim. It is well known, that it's not just that the hachamim established it, nebi'im were involved in establishing this. And everyone is obligated to read it. Anashim, men, nashim, women, gerim, converts, avadim, slaves that are freed. 
meaning that they have been freed and now become full-fledged members of Israel. We educate the children to read the Megillah as well. Even Kohanim that are on duty to serve in the Mikdash or in the Mishkan, and Mikdash it would be obviously because this is in Matilin talking about Purim, they stop their Abodah. And they all come together to hear the reading of the Megillah. We push aside study of Torah, which is never pushed aside for almost anything, to go and hear the Megillah. All the more so, if we push the study of Torah aside, we certainly push all the other mitzvot aside. Why? Because Talmud Torah, as it says, right? Talmud Torah is equal to all of them. All the mitzvot get pushed aside so that we can hear the Megillah. And then Harambam, in case we didn't get it up until now, says emphatically and clearly, You have no thing that Megillah, the reading of the Megillah is pushed off for. It takes precedent over everything. Except for a dead body that has nobody to bury it, what we call a mit mitzvah, if a person finds this kind of body, such a body, a corpse, bury him first and then you read the Megid. So, I mean, in no uncertain terms, this is of the highest importance, of the highest order. And if anyone had any question what is important and significant, there's no, there's no room to say otherwise here, except the reading of the Megillah. So this is this is interesting on so many levels because as it is the reading of Megillah, Rambam opens saying this is this is this is a, this is a rabbinic mitzvah, and Rambam is saying that all of the mitzvot of the Torah given to us by Moshe Rabbeinu are pushed aside because the Achamim decided they want us to read this book, this scroll, in public. So already. Notice, this is Aleph Aleph. This is Perek Aleph, Halakha Aleph. This is the opening to the laws of Megillah and Purim. It is established right at the beginning that Megillah is this steadfast, immovable, foundational aspect of Jewish life and Judaism and Jewish Jewish uh, uh, practice that is not to be moved for anything. It's very powerful. You just don't see anything like that in the Torah. There's nothing like it. So if you had any question as to whether you should own a Megillah on your own or not, meaning your own personal Megillah or not, that is the piece of Judaica that you buy. It's more important than anything else. So get one if you don't have one. And I mean this for men and women, because obviously it's a mitzvah for men and women equally also, right? You can't but uh, make a strong and, and valuable investment by, by buying a Megillah. Now that's the opening of the halachon. What about the closing of the halachot, right? What flanks the laws of Purim in Harambam's Mishneh Torah? Well, this is the last halacha. He says, Kol All of the books of the prophets and the writings, meaning the rest of the Tanakh, besides the five books of the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, will become null. Atidin libatel. They will become, they will cease to be uh, relevant to us. At the days of the Mashiach. Except for one book. Megillat Esther. See the Megillah of Esther. That is Kayam. Like the five books of the Torah. And the mitzvot of the Torah. And the dinim. That are always relevant. And always applicable to us for all time. So here, not only is Harambam saying that the mitzvah of reading the Megillah is, uh, takes precedence over everything, he's saying the very book itself is equivalent to the Hamishah Hamshet Torah. He's equating it to the Hamishah This book written by uh, the Sofrim in the time of Esther, that's not even a full sefer, it's an Igeret, right? This book is equal to the Hamisha Hom Torah and is never batil. It's fascinating. There's something 
very foundational and fundamental about Magilat Esther that we have. And even though we will forget all of the tzarot in the days of the Mashiach, and we will come into full freedom and happiness and joy, as it says, These days of Purim will not be batel, they will not be null. Meaning that even the problems of almost being uh, exterminated will always be remembered by us. In the book of Megillahs, it says, As it says in the Pasuk, these days Purim shall never be replaced, excuse me, repealed among the people. It will always remain in the memory of the, of the Am. So here you have two very significant points, right? That is Halakha, that shows that Megillah, that essentially Purim, is absolutely central and uh, bedrock in the fabric of Israel. So just to get our heads around that, you know, is 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 important. Just to be able you know, to kind of absorb the reality of that is important. What are the implications? I mean, talk about the potency of Purim itself in actually asserting, uh, uh, affirming, um, endorsing. The Brit itself that we have with the Kadosh Baruch to the point that the Brit that was established at Har Sinai is unfinished and really unresolved until Purim. That's a crazy thing. Another thing that the Hakamim say. Have a look at this. It says in Masichet Shabbat Pechet, It says that they stood at the uh, at the bottom of the mountain. Right, Tahar is a way to talk about the foot of the mountain. But the Achamim pick up on the word, on the wording of the Pasuk. It says Tahtit, which sounds like Tahat, underneath the mountain. What does that tell us? That there's this Tahtit of Ahar, right? There's this under underneath the mountain going on. It teaches us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu picked up the mountain and placed it over their heads. And said to them, if you accept the Torah, great. And if not, let you should be buried. This will be your burial place. I'll just drop the mountain on all of you and crush you like little ants. Okay. I sure find out with Rita and she will let you know. Maybe tomorrow because she, she had peace. I will. Amar bar Yaakov. Bar Yaakov says, well, Rav Abdimi, what he's saying is true. Now, it's important to recognize what I mean, true. One does not need to believe that a Kadosh Baruch Hu lifted a mountain over the heads of the people, literally. But the point of this Midrash is very, very clear. What is that, right? If a Kadosh Baruch Hu were to do that, what would the experience of Sinai be? The experience of Sinai is coercive. That's what the point of the of the midrash is. If that is what we are getting, right? If there is some element of that happening at Har Sinai, that means that Har Sinai was a coercive experience. And indeed, Rav Ahabar Yaakov points that out. He says, "Mikan This teaches us a huge point as far as the Torah is concerned and its obligation on us. What does that mean? It means if we were coerced into, if we were forced into accepting Torah, we do not really have obligation to keep it because it was not of our own volition or of our free will. Which is a very significant point to make on whatever level, right? In other words, if you're going to take this Midrash uh, the point of this midrash, seriously, I'm not saying that you have to accept that there was a mountain that was lifted, but if you're if you're picking up the nuance that Rav Abdimi is is highlighting over here, which essentially is that Hakadosh Baruch Hu threatened us and made us receive Torah, and that the experience of Sinai may not have even been an overt threat, but the experience of Sinai was threatening on a certain level even if it was threatening on a subconscious level. Even if we said, and had a very fervent feeling that we wanted to be involved with it. 
But then underlying that, there was this feeling of, well, what other option do we really have? Says That is a major, major caveat to the acceptance of Torah. Amarava, Rava comes to save the day and says, He says, look, it's true. It's a major caveat. And it is a very significant point. And notice, this is not some, you know, minor midrash that's thrown in as a possibility. Look at how many hachamim deal with this over here. This is a serious issue that is dealt with through, through time. Amar Rava, Rava says, Even so, he says, even if that question is left open, we, it's possible that there was some kind of subconscious coercive elements that were going on. Even if we wanted to be able to protest it later on, the, the reality is, is that it was firmly established a full mind and body by the nation during the days of Ahasuerosh. So this is another thing that the Ahasuerosh says. They say that Purim and the entire event of Purim finally brought our breed into full conscious acceptance amongst the people. As it says, it says the, the Yehudim were Kiyemu Vikibilu. What is Kiyemu Vikibilu? Kiyemu Mashikibilu Kvar. It says to tell us that there's kiyum, there's kiyum and there's Kabbalah. The Kabbalah, which was the reception, the acceptance to take it, happened at Har Sinai. The kiyum, the endorsement of it, the full-fledged signing off of it, happened at Puri. Took a thousand years for us to be able to finally come into the Torah and the Brit that was established there in full force which is also one of the reasons why you don't really see a huge amount of Avodah that I've spoken about after that time. Right, so this is a, this is a serious point. So I'm showing you that the, the book itself, the reading of the book, the festival itself, this is not, you don't see things like this said about Hanukkah. There's one Midrash that couples Hanukkah with Purim about the holidays that don't go away, but that's nothing to the degree that you see over here. You don't see this about any other of the Mu'adim spoken about. So something very, very fundamental about Purim. And I'm suggesting that it has to do with the nature of existence itself on this planet. Yes, it is an abstract thing. But that's the nature of existential, of existential uh, uh, realities. So I put over here that even existentialism, right, which is a, a particular mode of philosophy, is seen, can be seen as an antidote to coercion in life. Something that's put forth by Gary Cox in his book, How to Be an Existentialist, which I think is a, a worthwhile book to read if you're interested in having any kind of knowledge about existential philosophy. He says, many people have the silly idea gleaned from movies, adverts, and glossy magazines that life is predictable. So they feel dissatisfied with the life they have or even downright cheated out of the life they think they deserve. They fail to take control of the life they do have. Existentialists are nihilists because they recognize that life is ultimately absurd and full of terrible, inescapable truths. They are anti-nihilists because they recognize that life does, in fact, have a meaning, the meaning each person chooses to give his or her own existence. Now, of course, if you are an existentialist and you are not engaged with anything other than the world as it presents itself to you, that's a very plausible way to look at the world. Because it's taking realistically the fact that you do not have any reason whatsoever to expect life to be predictable. None of us do. There's a, a wonderful uh, line that says, uh, expectations are premeditated resentments. It's very true. We come into the world expecting, 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 expecting. And when our expectations are not fulfilled because of the nature of the world itself and the events of people, I mean, people are just as random as everything else in this world. You never know what you're going to get with the people. You end up being disappointed and resenting. And so what the point is being made over here by the uh, by uh, Gary is 
that it is a silly idea to expect that life should be predictable. One should accept that the world is completely unpredictable and random. And when one accepts that the world is this way, one is not necessarily happier, but one is capable of living a life. Because you can insert your meaning into it as you find relevant and valuable. Now, you know who did this? You know who was really able to accept fully that the world was completely unpredictable and decided to give meaning to the world in their own terms? Bilam. Bilam was this person. And that's why he's written in Torah. That's why he's part of Torah. Because he is the foil of Moshe Rabbeinu. He's the foil. We don't know what Moshe is yet. But we know that Bilam is this. And we know that Bilam was the Rebbe of Amalek, as the Hachamim say. And we know that Bilam really, really thought that he should be the one. I mean, Hachamim have a tradition that he thought he should be the one that gives Torah to the Jewish people, to the people of Israel, to take them out of Egypt. He was shocked when it ended up being Moshe Rabbeinu. And think about the fact that Megillat Esther is is straddling both of these worlds, right? Both of these, these, the yin and yang of Bilam and Moshe, not to connect them in any significant way, but Megillah straddles both. Because Megillah deals with this fundamental reality. There is no other festival that deals with the reality of this, this truth, that life is unpredictable, that the world is random, that you really never have any idea what's going to be. The Megillah is the only one, and Purim is the only one in our repertoire that deals with this head-on. So yes, the random themes that run through the Megillah and through Purim are extremely important. Because if nothing else, it reminds us that God himself, that God himself is completely and utterly random why would he be anything else what path does god need to follow what order of events does god need to 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 follow is he not all and everything and purely one at once is he not completely and utterly free and sovereign to do everything and anything that he wishes at any time even though we're borrowing the term time and all the other terms about him Is that not true? Is it not true that the fact that we believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has derachim, that he has ways of being, is some strange anomaly, that that is stranger than saying, if we accept God as God, as the Matsui Rishon, is it not stranger than saying that God is completely at liberty to do whatever he wishes whenever and to run a world that way? Well, that's what Bilam says. And it's what Amalek ultimately believe, which is why Bilam says about Amalek, Rishit Goyim Amalek. Amalek is the chief among nations. Nobody comes close to them because everybody else is living in their crazy illusions of Abu Dazara and nonsense and sucking their thumbs. Nobody's dealing with the hardcore nature of reality that is red in tooth and claw and completely unpredictable, unknowable in its ultimate sense. Well then, if that's the case, why don't we just leave it? You know, I mean, we call the festival Purim. We don't call the festival anti-Purim. We celebrate in the very festival itself the randomness of lotteries. It's the name of the festival. And not only that, it is manifest throughout the halachot of the festival. Have a look. Right? You see that even Mordechai, in the story, he doesn't know what's going on. He has absolutely no knowledge whatsoever, nor does he feign to have any knowledge of what's going on. Which is why you see these very strange Behaviors of Mordechai, not something you would you would imagine a very pious man to do. You would imagine a very pious man to think, okay, that's it. 
we're going to get out of this. Let's pray to God. Instead, what Mordechai does is every single day. Mordechai would pass by the harem. To know how Esther was, was doing. And what might happen to her. Had no idea. Even when he tells her, listen, you know, you're very close to the king. Uh, you, you have options over here that may be able to help us. He says, I mean, who knows? Maybe this is the reason why you became queen. He doesn't say, and Esther, this is Bashert. Esther, this is why you be clearly why you become queen. He doesn't tell her that. He says, Look, I have no idea why you became queen. Who knows what's going on over here? All I know is that you have some tremendous opportunities. I also know that if you don't do something over here, you're going to fall apart. And that's what he tells her. It's the only thing he tells her, which already, which begins to open. This pasuk in the Megillah is the core pasuk. You take this pasuk and the entire Megillah falls apart. This next pasuk that I'm going to read for you is the essence of the entire Megillah because it's here where Mordechai exposes the aspect of how Yisrael deals with a random world as opposed to Bilam and Gary Cox and every other existentialist like him. Mordechai says to his he goes, listen to me. If you keep silent at this time, I know the Jews are ultimately going to be okay. Because there's a breed that we have with the Kadosh Baruch Hu. He's committed to it fully. We have yet to be able to really get what it means, but he's committed to it fully. And the Yehudim are not going anywhere. But you, Esther, at Ubet Avich, and your line, your father's house, Tovedu, you will be lost. Because the fact that the Jews will carry on does not mean that there is not going to be a holocaust. That's uh, completely in the cards. We will not be annihilated. We will carry through. Even if there is only one Jew left, my statement to you will be true. But you have an opportunity to be part of the story over here, Esther. To really actually engage in the flow of where things are going. I mean, who knows? This could very well be the reason that you became queen. This is the book that's not going anywhere, right? This is the book that is going to be the foundation stone of the people of Israel for all time. This book that ends with uh, And so as I said, all, and I'm going to unpack that, right? Because I said it's, it opens up how it is that we relate to it. And I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. But I want to show you that all of the poor, all of the unpredictable, unknown, random aspects of the universe are manifest in this holiday, in the very halachot, in the reading of the Megillah. You know the laws of reading a Sefer Torah. If one letter if one piece of one letter is missing, Sefer Torah is pasul. Right, this is talking about the Megillah. If there were letters that were smudged, ripped, broken, if you can get what letter it is, more or less, even if the majority of the Megillah is that way. Keshira. It's a kosher Megillah. No rigidity over here. The general flow, gist of things. If you can't even get which letters these are, <laughs> it's crazy, you don't even know what the letters are. If the majority of it was at least legible, Keshira. Also kosher. Unbelievable. Not only that, that's in the actual text, the actual writing of the Megillah. What about the reading of the Megillah? 
Hakoreta Megillah, a person reading Megillah, made mistakes in the reading, and read just a messed up reading of the Megillah, didn't pronounce any of the words correctly. It's okay. You fulfill the obligation. We're not careful with the reading. We keep it all very open. All kinds of pronunciations are okay. As long as you get the gist, you know. Very open flu. That's uh, that's the reading the Megillah. What about the Matanot Le'avionim, which is a mitzvah on, on Purim? Hayab lehalik la'aniyim b'yom Purim. You have to give money to poor people on Purim. In pohatim aniyim, you have to give at least two aniyim. And so on. This is what we call Matanot Le'avionim. Shetem Matanot Nishne Aniyim. You give two to one to one, one to another. Okay? We're not especially careful with the money that we give on Purim. Rather, right, normally you should know, is the person who's asking money from you, are they really poor? Are they faking it? You should probably check. You don't want to be mahzik If they're stealing from people, you don't want to aid and abet the stealing. That's normal, Allah. Except that Rav says uh, nowadays, because uh, everybody's stealing, we wouldn't, end up, we wouldn't end up giving any tzedakah anyway. But here there is an encoded law, right? Embedded in the law of giving tzedakah on Purim that we don't even have to check anybody who comes. Just throw it all out there, right? No no discretion. You don't have to make any judgments. No discernment. You give whoever, whoever opens up their hand. So there's a huge amount Right, I just recognize this. Right, there is a huge amount on this festival that is insisting on a lack of discernment and judgment. That this is the way we keep the holiday. Now we have to understand why, but that's there, and that's all connected to the miodeyaim leit kazoti gatamalchut. That's all connected to the uh, you know of course connected to the entire concept that is central to the story of the whole fate of the Jewish people being due to a lottery. Let's throw it up to the random uh, to the randomness and see when we should kill them all. Yeah. And that is why, of course, there is this thing about drinking on Purim, right? I mean, I know that uh, Rabbi Weider is going to be teaching this, I think, to the local uh, Chabura, which is something that should not be missed. He's a tremendous Tamiyacha. But the drinking thing, I mean, what's the idea behind it? This is a halacha, right? You need to drink. If you don't drink on Purim, you're not fulfilling one of the mitzvot of the Yom. Haram posek halacha, that you've got to do this. He doesn't say that you have to go out into the streets and make a complete mockery of yourself and uh, get plastered and you know put your life in danger. That he does not say, nor should you. But he absolutely says that you need to drink as follows. Have a look. The Gemara says, Amarava, Mehyav Inish de Befuria. A person is obligated to become basum on Purim, which means to be intoxicated on Purim. To what degree? To the point that he doesn't know the difference between Arur Haman Baruch Mordechai. You know how plastered a person has to get to not know the difference between Arur Haman Baruch Mordechai? Maran's posseg shahan aruch. Same words. The Ramah says you don't have to read so much, uh, learn, drink so much that you forget all of your learning. Right? Harambam says you have to drink to get drunk and then go to sleep. That's how he interprets Adiloyada. You drink to the point of you get intoxicated and go to sleep. What do I hold? Not knowing the difference between Arur Haman and Baruch Mordechai doesn't mean that you completely lose consciousness and being able to know the difference between them. What it means is, is that you get drunk enough so that the question of Haman's evil 
And the question of Mordechai's righteousness can be expanded for exploration from alternative positions. I mean, was, was Haman really that bad? I mean, yes, I mean, he was a bit drastic, wasn't he? But did he not have reason to do this? Did he not recognize the threat of the Jewish people? Did we not start it, by the way? Way back with Yehoshua? Was there not this charge by God saying that we need to destroy all of Amalek? Did God not tell Shaul that he should have annihilated all of Amalek from Havilah to Shur? Who started it? Hmm. And I mean, Mordechai, right? I mean, even the Hachamim bring this out. Ratsui Lerovehav. Hachamim say Rovehav. I mean, this one man decided, he decided he was going to stand for his, his principles and drag the entire nation to mortal danger. Sure, I say this to you now, and it's hard for you to absorb, but have a couple glasses of wine. It'll be a little bit easier for you to be able to entertain. Why? Why all of this? Why all of this lack of discernment? Now, yeah, I tell you, drinking wine, as the Gemara says in Eruvin, you become more like God that way. Anybody who allows himself to be appeased by his wine, gives himself over a bit to his wine, acquires a bit of the dot of his maker. You begin to know a little bit what it's like to be God. What does that mean? I mean, look at Rav Nachman over here. Although Rav Yehuda Mar Shmuel says, you know, if you've had a reverit of wine, you shouldn't really be more halacha. Rav Natan says, rubbish. Rav Nachman, excuse me. He says, I don't take that shmatata. I don't take that teaching of, uh, of Rav Yehuda. He goes, if I haven't had a reverit of wine, I can't think clearly. I'm too rigid in my thinking. I need to be able to be open to the possibilities of the case. I, I don't sit on the bedin without a reverit of wine. Yeah. So before we go any further, let's try and understand this. If we recognize that HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself is the Matsui Rishon, which means he is undefinable, ineffable, omnipotent, I mean, omniscient, completely and utterly sovereign and free. You don't get more random than that. You don't get more undefinable, unpredictable than that. It's one of the reasons why we're not really allowed to give him any particular definitions. They all fail. Now, if you recognize that that is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, you recognize why HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to us later in the Navi, Lo My thinking is not like your thinking. Lo your ways are not like my ways. I do nothing like you. You are a bunch of mechanic habitual beings and I am absolutely not you never know what's coming with me which is why HaKadosh Baruch Hu says things like I'll give clemency to who I give clemency to I'll give mercy to uh, to who I give mercy to this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is why HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Bilam the first time that he meets him, no, don't go with the people. And the next time he says, yeah, okay, go with the people. But do what I tell you. Very important. Now, when we realize that that is the source of all being, we also realize that the nature of the world is completely random because what we know very clearly is that the whole universe came into being by random, by random events. And we recognize that that's the reality. Why would it be any other way? With HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Being that the universe came into being by random events. Being that I have no idea what the next hour will be. I really don't. I mean, we can assume what we like to assume. No, 
none of us know anything about the next hour. That's the truth. That's the truth that we like to keep at bay because it drives us nuts. But it is the underlying truth. And when we recognize that that is the case, that is the nature of existence itself. And Purim trains us to keep that. Don't be so discerning about the Megillah. You're going to lock yourself into a corner. Don't be so discerning about who you give charity to. You're going to lock yourself into a corner. Don't be so discerning and and rigid about your opinions of things. You're going to lock yourself into a corner. And the more that you lock yourself into a corner, the more rigid you become in your ways, the further away from God you get. Because you become the master of all things and you do not allow yourself to experience, be surprised by, explore the things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is and has and presents in this world to you. So relax when you're reading the Megillah. Relax when you're writing it. Relax when you're reading it. Relax when you're giving the charity. As a matter of fact, have a cup of wine. Maybe two. You should have enough wine so that you can't succinctly say with emphatic clarity that it's Arur Haman Baruch Mordechai. I mean, you should follow Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman wouldn't get on the Beddin until he had a, a, a river eat of wine that allowed for him to open up his mind so that he wouldn't come to the case biased. That he would open himself enough to be able to hear the possibilities presented and not come with preconceptions. And that is why if you have a rivit, if you allow yourself to be appeased by your wine, yesh midat kono, you're like your maker. You start to see the world very, 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 very slightly, like God does, in full expanse. Mm. Okay. Well, isn't that dangerous? Yes, it is. It creates people like Bilam and Amalek and Haman. Except that for us, we didn't reject all of that. We've incorporated it into the holiday. Like I said, we actually named the holiday. Purim. Huhagoral. Well, then what is the antidote? What is the antidote? The antidote is not, and I highlight and underline and emphasize, the antidote is not to reject randomness. To reject the fact that you have no idea what is going to happen the next minute. Forget about the next hour. You accept that. You be a big boy and girl and understand that that is the nature of God's universe, of God himself, and of your life. And that being the case, there is only one option and it isn't the option of the existentialists and Gary Cox. It is not you make your own meaning. Do you know why it is not you make your own meaning? Because as strong as you believe your meaning to be, and the quiet moments at night when you are alone in your bed with nothing but your thoughts, you know that there is an abyss of meaninglessness underneath you. And all of your meaning is rubbish. And that's the truth. And no matter how strong your meaning is, it will not change the fact that you do not know what is happening tomorrow. There is only one possible fix to it. And that is that you get the creator, the random, completely sovereign and free creator, to agree to drachim, to agree to abide by ways with you to abide by consistent patterns with you. Maybe what we would call a breed with you, a covenant. Well, you ask Bilam and say, good luck with that. God's not doing that. He's God. And what Moshe asks HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, show me your ways, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. 
Hagadosh Baruch Hu says, ways. Okay, fine. I'll do that. I'll do that too. I'll show you. I'll give you ways. But, I reserve the right to to give mercy to whoever I want, to give Hanina to whoever I want. I'll do the ways with you, Moshe, but to a degree. And that is the expanse of the Matsui Rishon coming into, into the eye of a needle. It's threading the Matsui Rishon through the eye of the Israelite needle in the Brit of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That until Purim, we really didn't get what it meant. Because until Purim, we were idol worshippers. And we believed that the mode of interaction with HaKadosh Baruch Hu was appease the gods. And that's what we did for a thousand years en masse. I mean, sure, there were the individuals among us who got it like the Nebi'im and Moshe and you know some of the special ones. But for the most part, we were nothing but appease the gods like all the Goyim around us. Just read the Nebi'im. It's replete. It doesn't end. We were Abu Dazara worshippers. And if we were Abu Dazara worshippers, we had no knowledge of this whole concept of, of the God that Bil'am understood. We didn't get it. Amalek got it. We didn't. But what did we finally get at Purim? What we finally got at Purim, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not making miracles, when he wasn't standing in and saving us from uh, whatever it was that needed saving in these magical ways, when he wasn't sticking his nose into the, the world that he created in the universe as it was, when he simply flowed through the entirety of it as it was in its natural state, in its full random sense that he created and ultimately took its cue from him, we understood that when we call to him, he listens. And the only reason he does is because we have a breed. And the only reason we have a breed is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu agreed to bind himself for the love of this people. And that is the truth of Am Yisrael. And, and I tell you all, it is either that or what the existentialists say. There's no medium. There's nothing else. Everything else is Avodah And that's why you have to accept the randomness into the holiday. Because if you don't accept the randomness into the holiday, you miss the point. The whole point of the Mikre, in Hebrew we call it Mikre, the whole point of the Keri is that in the vast expanse of Keri, of the Mikre of Purim, there is possibility to thread the vast expanse of God into the needle of Israel through Brit and to bind him with them and for him to agree, for that being, that Matsui Rishon, to agree to commit to a consistent, loving, bonded relationship. And that's why, that is why Mordechai says, I have no idea about anything, Esther. I don't know if there's a reason you came queen. I don't know what they're doing with you. I can tell you one thing. The Jews will carry on. And I know that, Esther, because we have a breed with him. It may be a Holocaust. The breed does not preclude that. It may be that there's only, as it says in the Navi, I will keep whoever I, whoever's left. Maybe there's only one Jew. It's a very thin, conservative, strict reading of the fine print of the Brit. But it is the Brit. And the Yehudim, I tell you that, you can take to the bank, Esther, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised that. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises something, you can take it to the bank. None of the other stuff is promised. All of the other stuff is God in His full sovereignty. And it is only in that breed that la vikar. The akar is what happens to Keri when there is actual focus, commitment, and care. And the only reason that the focus and commitment and care means anything is because of the randomness of the sea from which it comes. Because it definitely did not need to be that way. And the default is that it should not be that way. Haman is right. 
ראשית גויים עמלק, but ישראל עושה חי. And that is why Rambam says the following. He brings Purim down to one point and have a look. So beautiful. He, this is where Rambam talks about, this is in the Sefer Mitzvot. Not, not even the, the Mishnah Torah, in the Sefer Mitzvot. When he just talks about the Inyan of Purim. He says... Here, meaning there are certain mitzvot that were established by the hachamim. That's what he means by nidhachu. Purim, Hanukkah, things like that. Ayrub. We have an obligation to accept them and to keep them. Because the Torah says to us, whatever the Sanhedrin establishes, the Bedin Agadol establishes, we have to accept. And the Bedin Agadol established Purim without question. This doesn't add 614-15 mitzvot to the Torah. They're separate. They're their own thing. Navi, what does it mean not to add on to the mitzvot? It means that a Navi can't come and say, Kadosh Baruch Hu told me we have another mitzvah. Nobody said that. The Hachamim said, Kadosh Baruch Hu tell us anything. We're telling you, we want you to do this. And since they say, that's fine. This is what we say. He uses, he uses Megillah as an example. He says, rather, the Hachamim told us with Nebiim that we should read the Megillah. In its time. Why? Listen carefully why. To recognize the praise that we have for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the salvation that he brought to us, well, why is that different than Hanukkah? Tell you why. He was close to our calls to him, which is central in the Megillah, right? Esther says, Sumo alai. Fast for me. She has everybody to fast for her so she could go in and she should do this. And that's why the Tzomot and their Za'aka, right? They're calling out Agadosh Baruch Hu. And the whole thing is to show us what? It's a real relationship. It actually works. If you believe that it does and you take advantage of it. Why? And to tell us, to all the generations in the future, that it's true what was promised to us in the Torah. Who is a nation as great as us that has a God, as God close to them? That's the end of the Pasuk. In every call that we make to him. He responds and answers. That's why we have Burit. What? To remember, to remind us not just of the Burit, but that's why the Achamim say, But Purim, it was sealed. Why? Because we finally got it. And we realized that even in the face of complete extermination that was essentially established by Haman, that who had any idea how the heck we were going to get out of that? That there was a promise made. And that we came together as an entire people and fasted as one and prayed as one and sent Esther in to take care of it. That's what we have. And that is significant and yakar only in a sea of randomness. That that God decided to commit to. And that it is real and it is there. That's Puri. Urim brings us to deal with the nature of existence itself, to acknowledge that it is absolutely random and uncertain, because God is. And that the only thing in that reality that Bil'am and Amalek know so well, there is only one thing that can fly in the face of that. And that is Akadosh Baruch Hu's love for us and Allah, our love for him and our bonded covenant together.
and there is nothing else. And if you take away that bonded covenant, you take away that berit, you are left with Gary Cox and the existentialists and exactly what they say. Which is why the Hachamim juxtaposed Bilam to Abraham Avinu. There's no two ways about it. There's only him and Abraham, him and Moshe. There is nothing else. That's the reality. Good. So I leave you with that. And I wish you a Purim Sameach. And Yiratzon, uh, that in the, as in with Purim, we should see the days go from Yagon Vesimcha to Evel Yom Tov Vinafochu. And that all of the Yehudim should be uh, in full rejoice and strength with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. All righty. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.